Hello. Sit down, make yourself at home, grab a marshmallow. Just watch where you step, because things can get very messy out here. Welcome to the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory. Welcome to the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory, the podcast that provides top travel tips for time travellers. I'm your tour guide, David Mountain. For this episode, I'm about to explore the Triassic, the Jurassic's older, cooler brother. Lasting from 252 to 201 million years ago, Triassic is a period of incredible recovery and transformation, a time when life picks itself up from the unprecedented crisis of the end Permian mass extinction, and not only returns, but returns with a vengeance. This period sees the evolution of mammals, marine reptiles, pterosaurs, and, of course, the rise of the dinosaurs, the undisputed superstars of prehistory. You're joining me on a beautiful Triassic dusk. The sun has just set and the first stars are coming out. But before I head in for the night, I want to start planning my trip a little. And, as luck would have it, I'm sharing my campfire with two Triassic experts. Dr Emma Dunn, a paleobiologist at the University of Birmingham. Hi! (laughs) And Professor Mike Benton, a paleontologist at the University of Bristol. Hello, good to see you. So, Emma, here we are in the Triassic. And when I start exploring this world tomorrow morning, first of all, what clothes should I wear? What's the weather going to be like? (laughs) Well, first of all, excellent choice. Out of all the other intervals, this is a good one. Well, the weather forecast says it's going to be really hot, maybe a bit humid. So we're talking tropical, like Hawaiian shirts, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Go nuts. This is a beast time kind of holiday. Maybe not so much with the, you know, the nice calming breeze or anything like that. But yeah, it's going to oh, be okay. pretty warm. <laughs> so we're talking sun cream, sun hats, shades, sure. all that stuff. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So why is the climate so warm and tropical in the Triassic? Many, many different reasons. <laughs> um, well, the main contributing factor to that will be that there is this massive landmass called Pangaea. And in the centre of Pangaea, there are going to be desert environments. And as we move away from the equator, things are still going to be pretty warm, but not too much cooler. Today, we have loads of different continents and they're all broken up, many more coastlines, a lot more effects of the sea and the weather in that sense. But if you have a big landmass, we're going to be talking about very hot environments. Now, I had it in my head that the Triassic was a very dry time, but you mentioned that it was quite humid, and I have to say, the last time I went, I visited the Carnian stage, about 230 million years ago, and it rained the entire time. To be honest, it kind of ruined my holiday. So, what was going on there? Because I'd packed my sun hat and my summer clothes, like you said, but I had to stay in my tent the entire time. Such a pity. What a bad time to choose. Yeah, so apparently as the continents start to shift towards the end of the Triassic, 
we see these humid events. And one of the ones that you speak about there in the Carnian is much more famous example, very well studied example of the Carnian pluvial event. And that was when there was meant to be periods of a lot of rainfall, for sure, and a lot of humidity. And even though it sounds like quite a devastating event for you, especially on your holiday, <laughs> it's actually quite a good event for the dinosaurs. So apparently it contributed to their rise to dominance. So good and bad news. <laughs> okay, so the Carnian was something of an exception for the Triassic. But mm. for the rest of the period, when conditions are generally drier, if I want to find forests and greener landscapes, I'm guessing I need to head away from the equator, is that right? Yes, for sure. So don't stick around the equator too long, too hot, sun cream won't last you too long. I'll, I'll frazzle. Uh, yep. <laughs> so yeah, moving much further away into the mid to high latitudes, you'll find these forests where the reptiles all hang out and all the cool beasties there. Now, I love forests. I think they're probably my favourite habitat to explore. So I'm really keen to learn what types of plants, what trees were around in these Triassic forests. Is there anything that I would recognise from today? Yes, actually. So the Triassic, when we get to the Triassic, much like the animals, we recognise quite a lot of stuff that we know of from today. Some examples, ferns and conifer kinds of trees, and also ginkgos, one of my favourite trees. So there's quite a lot that we would recognise. Not quite maybe exactly like forests we know of today, but certainly getting there. Does this mean that those forests would have had that lovely piney smell that you get in conifer forests oh, today? Most likely, probably probably even better because of the humidity and the, oh. the warmth. So, you know, when you walk into a very humid forest, you just get hit by this waft of just wonderful smells. So probably even better. That sounds good. I like that. <laughs> now, at the start of the Triassic, the Earth is essentially a planet-sized graveyard following the devastation of the mm. end Permian mass extinction. So how long did it take for plants and plant communities to re-establish following the Permian to reach levels of diversity and complexity that they once had? A long time is the short answer. Um, we're not quite sure is the other answer. So it was affecting all environments, this big mass extinction at the beginning, and the time taken for it to come back to some sort of semblance of normal, if normal is a word that we can even use. It took a considerable amount of time. Most of the early Jurassic and most of the middle as well was spent building up environments again. At least half the Triassic was spent regenerating and coming back up to what would be considered a full-blown ecosystem. Wow, so we're talking millions and millions of years here. This flourishing of biodiversity didn't really quite get a hold until later in the Middle Triassic to Late Triassic. So, yeah, long time. So there's not really that much to see if you go to the earliest Triassic. There's still some cool things to see. That there's oh, okay. some cool stuff. But when people think of the Triassic and they think of the cool stuff that is there and the environments that they think of, they're probably thinking of the later Triassic. So towards the halfway point and further. Right. Okay. Mike, a lot of people go to the Triassic expecting to see loads of dinosaurs because, I mean, this is the Mesozoic, it's the age of dinosaurs. And they sometimes come back a bit disappointed because they don't see any. So whenabouts in the Triassic do dinosaurs really start to become common? This is one of the most exciting themes of my field, and it's a challenge for students who, who are just coming into the subject because I can say we know that there were dinosaurs present in the early and middle Triassic, but we have not found them. So this is one of those famous known unknowns. 
So how can we know for sure? So the fact is that the first dinosaur skeletons are known from the late Triassic. They date from about 230, 228 million years ago. And remember, the Triassic began at 252. So there's a long gap there. Two pieces of evidence, we know they were there. One is footprints. It's not the best, but it's indicative. And so dinosaurs all typically have three-toed feet. They, they have the, the outer toes, but they don't touch the ground. And so even the earliest dinosaurs had three-toed feet. They tended to be small animals. So these early dinosaurs that we know from the late Triassic, particularly from Argentina and Brazil, and so all the evidence seems to suggest that even if dinosaurs didn't originate in South America, they first diversified there. And the reason that we find them is that they must have become reasonably common and diverse because there are many, many species, maybe 10 or 15 species at this very early point. And to describe them, they're about human size. So they range maybe from one to two or three meters in length, but human height. So even a three meter long slender, bipedal, two-legged animal is, is only about human height. And they're predators. So all the early ones are flesh eaters. They're bipedal, upright, fast running, and they produce trackways of three-toed prints quite close together. So we can actually diagnose a dinosaur trackway reasonably securely. But the other reason we know they were there were that all their sister groups were there. So what are sister groups? Sister groups are closest relatives. And so there were a whole bunch of quite rare, small reptiles from the Triassic, some of them called things like Silesaurids uh, and various other names for these groups. They're not dinosaurs, but quite close. And we know fossils of these back to the beginning of the middle Triassic, and some even just at the end of the early Triassic. So if these nearest relatives are there, then the dinosaurs were also there. We know for sure because the geometry of the evolutionary tree forces you to accept that point. So this is a really exciting thing for two reasons. One, it means that dinosaurs and all of these new kinds of reptiles, including another close relative of dinosaurs, which are the pterosaurs, the flying reptiles, and their first fossils are even younger. So the gap, the time gap there is maybe more like 30 million years of missing record. We know that there will be pterosaurs, there will be intermediates, because they just appear in the latest Triassic of Italy and Switzerland as fully flapping winged creatures with long fingers and leathery wings and so on. And there they are, they're already flying. So really exciting. It brings the origins of all these remarkable new groups of the Mesozoic, dinosaurs, pterosaurs, and relatives back into the early Triassic. Because we know they're there, we've got to find the blasted things. And so for a young paleontologist to set a target, go and find these, because you will guarantee a highly successful career if you can find convincing fossils and, and publish some descriptions of them. It's kind of the Triassic holy grail. Exactly. Emma, you mentioned that the Carnian pluvial event may have helped the dinosaurs get the upper hand in the Triassic world. Do we know how, exactly, a few million years of really wet weather might have helped the dinosaurs? Short answer is we're not sure yet, but there is some really cool research going on in this area at the moment and it'd be really great to get an answer. But the idea is that at this time along the equator region that there's quite a lot of harsh weather. It's very hot, dry, desert-like. 
And the thought is that dinosaurs weren't able to have these massive global distributions that you see much later in their evolution in the Jurassic and Cretaceous because of this inaccessible belt. And that the Carnian pluvial event, this rain and humidity, probably maybe could have dampened the effects of that heat and acting as a barrier to their dispersal. So that's one theory. Another one is just that this hot, humid environment might have been good for them. They might have really enjoyed it and just flourished naturally even where they were. So yeah, still not sure, but really interesting prospect to see if that was a really key driver in their evolution. Yeah. And more broadly, are there any other environmental factors that may have helped the spread and the diversification of dinosaurs during the Triassic? Because they go from small, relatively uncommon creatures to the point where, at the Triassic-Jurassic boundary, they're poised to dominate life on land for the next 140 yeah. million years. I get <laughs> Sorry to be so unsure, but we're not certain. So there, again, is research going on in this area. Part of it is some of the research that I'm doing, where this idea is that there was some sort of thing stopping them from becoming so dominant in the Triassic that just wasn't present in the Jurassic and, again, in the Cretaceous. But... There's almost not opposing because they could they could act at the same time, but two key things that are involved here. One is climatic, as you mentioned, and the other is the presence of these other competitors. So these other large reptiles that were competing with them for resources like food and space. And that once they met their demise at the end of the Triassic, the dinosaurs are there like rubbing their hands together, like, well, hey, <laughs> time for me to shine. And um, so it could have been either a combination of those two things or one of those things separately. And that's something that we're still trying to tease apart. Spoiler alert, my research is showing that it might be on the competition side. The climate might have helped, but that might have been more to do with the earlier in the late Triassic, around the Carnian time. But towards the end of the Triassic, at the end Triassic mass extinction, the competition might have been the key thing that was eliminated that allowed them to continue on and become crazy and amazing that they did in the Jurassic. Let's talk about these competitors. Mike, can you give me an impression of the range of terrestrial reptiles that I might find on my Triassic holiday, other than the dinosaurs? Yes. And so because dinosaurs were present, but rare, and the, the fact we don't find them tends to suggest it's not because we're lazy, we really do want to find them. <laughs> uh, they're likely rare. The other animals that were more common, so herbivores, there were a number of uh, medium to large sized plant eating reptiles. Some of them were what we traditionally call mammal-like reptiles, or more properly, synapsids. And the synapsids are a large group of tetrapods that include these early forms plus the mammals. And mammals originate at the end of the Triassic, or in the late Triassic, at about the same time as these early dinosaurs are found. But there were some different plant-eating synapsids. In the late Permian, some of them survived into the Triassic. So, for example, there were the dicynodonts. They were a very important group. The best known early one was Lystrosaurus, which is often regarded as a kind of great survivor. Lystrosaurus was present in the latest Permian. Everything else died out pretty much. It survived into the early Triassic. And then Lystrosaurus and its kind, they gave rise to a whole bunch of dicynodonts in the middle to late. Um, try. To describe them, they were maybe a meter to three or four meters in length. So some of them were pretty big, maybe as big as a rhino. And they would have lived in large herds, because if you find one, you find a hundred. And they were absolutely dominant. They were the cattle or sheep of the, the Triassic. 
They tended to have rather few teeth, the named Isinodont two teeth. They sometimes had a pair of kind of incisor teeth and horny jaws with which they could rake up and chomp the tough plants. They didn't chew very much. The jaws did a sort of circular front to back movement and they could sort of chop up in that way. But it was just like coarse scissors and they'd swallow it down and they'd be burping and farting around in the early part of the Triassic. <laughs> the other main herbivores were rhynchosaurs, a group that I've studied in quite a lot of detail which are more related to the dinosaurs, but quite distantly. And they have a similar kind of sort of smiling face, it looks like, and they would rake up tough plant food. And they had very broad palates with arrangements of teeth where the lower jaw cut into the upper jaw like the blade of a penknife closing into the handle of the penknife. So a very sharp cutting movement as the jaw goes up. But they couldn't do this back and forwards cycle of chewing that the dicynodonts did. So the rhynchosaurs would be swallowing the food even less chopped up and with probably even more startling consequences. And, and there are examples of dung beds where these different herbivores were just depositing huge amounts of dung and these are preserved and you can interpret what they were eating. Um, amongst the carnivores were both the synapsids and the archosaurs. I should have named the archosaurs as the larger group that includes dinosaurs and rhynchosaurs and various others. There were carnivores that survived through the Permian extinction event. Lots went extinct, though. And so for a time, some of these herbivores were free of carnivory. So there's an advantage being a herbivore, being something like a rhino or an elephant. You're so big that you more or less escape predation. So there was a kind of arms race between prey and predators through the Triassic, with the herbivores just getting bigger and bigger. And that happened later with dinosaurs in general. So the carnivores, I suppose there were some, the main ones were the archosaur type carnivores, some of which got very big, meter-long skulls, the, the erythrosuchids and rhyosuchians, two different groups that had, if you can imagine, a meter-long skull, um, quite high in side view, the jaws lined with very large teeth, each about the size of your index finger, but the teeth curve back and the edges are serrated like a steak knife. So as the thing just needs to bite you, get you in the mouth. And the, the more you struggle, you struggle down into the throat because the teeth are pointing backwards. It's a very good adaptation. And indeed, after the dinosaurs originated, and even after they became reasonably abundant in the late Triassic, the Rausukians were the top predators. So the early dinosaurs throughout the Triassic, they were generally preyed upon by non-dinosaurs until finally these groups disappeared at the end of the Triassic. So when we talk about safety in the Triassic, a basic piece of advice is to keep away from the Rarasukians. Definitely. Because if you find yourself in those jaws, there's no way out. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking about that penknife closing mechanism of the rhynchosaurs. That sounds like it could give you a very nasty nip if you got too close to one of those animals. Probably, although they're more adapted to cutting plant food. But yeah. Certainly the dicynodonts had quite sharp jaw edges, so just like you don't want to get your finger into the jaws of a tortoise, even if the tortoise is normally eating lettuce, nonetheless the sharpened edges of the jaws would maybe not nip your finger off, but it would yeah, give you a pretty nasty bruise, I expect. And of course, watch where you step, with all those dung beds lying around. Definitely. You briefly mentioned the pterosaurs earlier, and this is another group of animals that first appear on the scene in the Triassic. And what surprises me about these animals when I see them is that they're not scaly like a lizard, but fluffy. 
they seem to be covered in some sort of downy fuzz. These aren't feathers, are they? Well, I would argue that they probably are. But yes, let's take this step by step. You're right. The pterosaurs are not flying dragons. They're obviously the nearest we have to that. I think really from the early days, even back in the 1830s and 1840s, people pretty well knew that they were covered in some sort of insulating covering. And uh, more and more specimens were found. People studied specimens from Russia and from China um, under the scanning electron microscope. And the fluffy structures seemed to be just single whiskers, and they seemed to occur all over the body. And they were called pycnofibers, P-Y-C-N-O, pycnofibers, as a special name to distinguish them from the hair of mammals or the feathers of birds. And I think Victorian paleontologists were quite happy to discover that they had it because, of course, a flying animal has to have a high metabolic rate, which means it's eating a lot, it needs a lot of oxygen, essentially just to power the motor to enable it to fly, because flying is a very energetic exercise. But when we, a couple of years ago, had a look at some pterosaur pycnofibers in a bit more detail, we found that from specimens from the Lake Jurassic of China, we actually found unexpectedly there were branched pycnofibers. And the definition of a branched structure that grows out of a follicle in the skin, the dictionary definition, of course, is a feather. And I think many people will know that feathers have been found extensively in dinosaurs. At first, we thought maybe just in the dinosaurs that are closest to birds. But then over the years, it's gone deeper and deeper in the evolutionary tree. And now feathers were found in ornithischian dinosaurs, things like Cetacosaurus and Colinda Chromaeus. And that tends to point the origin of feathers back into the Triassic at the origin of dinosaurs, which, oh dear, that's in the early Triassic, as we noted before. And so that's when pterosaurs originate. They are the nearest sister group of birds. So we have suggested that these branching structures within amongst the pycnofibers of pterosaurs are feathers of a kind. It does tend to confirm, as people are realizing, I think, that dinosaurs all have high metabolic rates. Pterosaurs have long been understood to have high metabolic rates. From the start, I would say they all had feathers, and these originated in the early Triassic at the same time as synapses were acquiring hair. And they were all becoming somewhat warm-blooded at early stage. Warm-bloodedness today seems very distinct, but There are degrees and degrees of cold-bloodedness and warm-bloodedness, and so crossing that barrier is not so difficult, but it's a stepwise thing. That's amazing. Now, it wasn't just that reptiles took to the air in the Triassic, of course, they also took to the oceans. And for someone interested in a bit of scuba diving or snorkeling in the Tethys maybe, what marine reptiles might they encounter? This was the other amazing switch that happened, that as far as we've found, people have looked hard. We never found a marine reptile before the Triassic. There are odd things, Mesosaurus in the early Permian between Africa and South America and a few others. But the groups we focus on in in the Triassic are the ichthyosaurs and the sauropterygians. And the ichthyosaurs, first of all, are the dolphin-shaped, shark-shaped reptiles. They're known from the early Triassic onwards, and and during the Triassic, they diversified amazingly. And some of the very early ones from China do show primitive characteristics. The limbs are still almost at a pinch. They show a little bit of the terrestrial heritage. You can't quite say that they would be land walkers, but we predict that there are missing fossils. So here's another prediction of fossils we need to find. 
They are related to diapsid reptiles, maybe a little bit more to the lizard side, the lepidosaur side than to the archosaur side. And during the Triassic, the diversification of ichthyosaurs was astonishing. They start as maybe no more than a meter in length, quite long, sinuous things feeding on fish. But in the late Triassic, there were some real monsters, the Shonisaurs, some of which maybe got to 15 or even 20 meters in length, truly huge. These were the biggest animals ever. And then most of them all went extinct, just stepwise through the Triassic, and you get a whole crop of different ones in the Jurassic. The much more familiar ichthyosaurs from Lyme Regis, Marianning, blah, 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 all of that. And Jurassic and Cretaceous ichthyosaurs were very standard. Whereas in the Triassic, my goodness, they had diversified enormously. The Sauropterygians, a bit more of a mouthful, that was a mixed group, including in the Triassic, the Nothosaurs, the Pachypleurosaurs, and the Placodots. And again, the diversity of form and adaptation of these marine reptiles was higher in the Triassic than ever subsequently. Because the Jurassic and Cretaceous ones we're more familiar with are the plesiosaurs and pliosaurs, the Loch Ness monster kind of thing with a long neck usually, or the pliosaurs have a short neck but a huge skull, and uh, with four paddles and swimming largely with the paddles, whereas the ichthyosaurs tended to swim by beating the tail from side to side as a shark does. But in the Triassic, the pachypleurosaurs tended to be small, the nothosaurs large, And you often find them in ridiculous numbers. So there are localities in China where you can split the beds open, lift it out, take out a meter square piece of um, the seafloor, and it may contain 20 or 30 pachypleurosaurs complete. And this is a genus called Kichosaurus. They are just ridiculously common. They're not big. So each one would just be wriggling in your hand and long-necked, little jaws, four little paddles, and they were just present in the millions. In the same locations, often in the middle Triassic, are the nothosaurs, some of which may have been three, four, five meters in length. They tend to have a slightly more crocodile-type skull, quite long jaws, broad skull, pointy little teeth. So they're all fish eaters, all of these things. And then thirdly, the placodonts, which again are totally different. Broad skulls, huge mashing teeth at the back of the jaws. These were They had goofy teeth at the front for grabbing oysters off the rocks, and then they push the shells back, crunch them in the back of the palate, spit out the shells, and and they all went. All of these groups disappeared at the end of the Triassic. So there we are, and they flourished, and then at the end of the Triassic, another extinction event, many of them went, sadly. All right, we can't avoid it anymore. Let's address the end Triassic mass extinction, one of the big five mass extinctions in our planet's history. Emma, what was going on at the end of the Triassic to cause this mass extinction? So the end Triassic mass extinction, there's a lot of volcanic activity linked to the changes that we see there. The climate change linked to increasing CO2 in the atmosphere because of this volcanic activity. And that, of course, would very much like what's happening today, warm the atmosphere and create much, much warmer, hotter conditions. And that was probably what led to the mass extinction event that we know of very well. And it's still ongoing research always here in the Triassic, very active area of research. But yeah, one of the key factors is this warming, global warming. And why it's so important to research is that it's very similar to what we're seeing today, but on a much, much, much quicker scale. The driver of the volcanism was seemingly uh, from the mid-Atlantic, so it's called the CAMP, the Central Atlantic Magma Province. And that Central Atlantic province is 
between Europe and Africa on the one hand and North America on the other hand, the North Atlantic was opening up and there was a great deal of volcanic activity associated with that. And so any volcanic eruption sends a great deal of gases into the atmosphere, including carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide and methane and water vapor. The sulfur dioxide can have a cooling effect, but the others are greenhouse gases and they particularly have a, a warming effect. And coupled with almost certainly acid rain on land and acidification of the ocean, and the impact of the acid rain on land would be killing plants. As we see today, we can see acid rain in action. This is on a bigger scale. Uh, you kill the plants, you thereby clear the forests, the soil disappears. So it's a huge effect of mass wasting. Uh, and then that wash of mud and muck into the oceans coupled with acidification would also have a major killing effect on most marine life because it clogs up their filter feeding systems. The acidification destroys the calcium carbonate in the shells of many marine creatures, including corals and, and mollusks and so on. Are we able to put a figure on just how many species were lost at the end of the Triassic, both on land and in the oceans? I think we can get a fairly good impression. So whichever way you look at it, it seems to be about 50% of species were killed. And contrasting that with the end Permian, that was much bigger. That was something like 90 to 95%. So we can get that estimate of 50% by looking at the global information on which major groups are disappearing. The Ryosukians all disappear, other groups all disappear. And, you know, amongst the marine groups, lots of ammonite groups disappeared. Many of the marine reptiles disappeared. But we know that there were a few survivors, you know, maybe half a dozen surviving marine reptiles, uh, and, and they came back. So, yeah, 50% is about it. All right, so it's pretty clear that the end of the Triassic wasn't a great time for life on Earth. So I'm thinking, from a practical point of view, is it worth visiting? Or is it just going to be too hot, too uncomfortable? Because I burn easily. I mean, I've been sunburnt in Scotland before. So... <laughs> Would you recommend it or not? As somebody who's also gotten burnt in Scotland, <laughs> um, it depends on how much you like hot weather. I would kind of hope in some sort of magical sense that if you could travel this far back in time, you could also withstand the environment. But that, that's wishful thinking. Definitely bring your sun cream. Definitely, you know, your, your free floaty clothes, flip-flops, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I would proceed with caution. I'm definitely telling you as an Irish person who burns really easily. <laughs> okay, I guess good to know. If you took your time machine to one of the polar areas, you would probably be okay. Whether you'd find a great deal of food, I don't know, because the forests and most of the soil would have gone. And so you'd be foraging for oysters and probably early cockroaches or something like that. I have to say, I think I've had better holidays. Indeed. <laughs> Okay, so I'm not putting the end Triassic high up on my to-do list for this trip. But what should top my list? Mike, if there's one thing to see or do in the Triassic, what is that for you? Wow, that's an interesting one. I think I would just love to go back to the Ischogalasto formation, which is that formation in um, South America, in Argentina, where the earliest dinosaurs occur. And they tend to occur side by side with dicynodonts and rhynchosaurs. So this is just the switchover of the earlier world that survived the Paleozoic. And I think I'd love to see the herds of hundreds of rhynchosaurs and dicynodonts chomping and doing what they did. 
and the odd dinosaurs, human-sized, sort of flitting around. We'd probably be reasonably safe from those dinosaurs, but um, just to witness that very different world that we, we can see in the fossils. And for you, Emma? Oh, I'd get in so much trouble with everybody who works in the Triassic if I picked one. <laughs> I would definitely say the middle Lake Triassic, Carnian, Norian time, around there, just the diversity of animals, the diversity of environments, just best place for a safari, definitely. Sounds good. Well, the fire's dying down now and it's getting pretty dark, so I think it's time for me to head to bed. But I can't wait to explore the Triassic tomorrow morning. So massive thanks to my two guests, Dr. Emma Dunn and Professor Mike Benton, for sharing their Triassic travel advice. If you've enjoyed what we've been talking about, then be sure to check out their research. There are links in the episode notes. And last but not least, thank you to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you have, please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and leave a positive review. And I hope you'll join me again for the season finale of the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory. But until then, safe travels. Mm-hmm.